Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. Hello, how do? Good day to you and yours. Welcome to The Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thanks a million for joining me yet again. Or for the first time, this whole thing is anonymous on your end, so I have no idea who's listening to this. Ooh, so mysterious. Anyway, I hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving if you're American, and I hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving if you're not American, although Thanksgiving may not have meant a whole lot to you if you are not American. Mine was lovely. Thanks for asking. And now, I'm back, and better than ever. Except for this stupid fucking cold that I can't get rid of, which is why my voice has a touch of the Kathleen Turner to it right now. That's the only real benefit to having a cold, I think. Who in their right mind doesn't want to sound like Kathleen Turner? No one. That's who. So, I've got quite a treat for you today. I had the enormous pleasure of talking to Karen Rose Gold, the founder and creative director of Amorir Studio, about her love for the Muppets and the Beatles. Iconic subject matter, don't you think? Karen first rose to international prominence. See what I did there? Karen Rose. Ha 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 ha. Name lols. Sorry. Anyway. Karen's luxury artisanal eyewear line is beloved by some of the most incredible people to ever walk this earth. Think I'm exaggerating? Here's a little roll call. Rihanna, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Beyonce, Nicki Minaj, and that's just naming a few. And the work she does with crystals, my god. Check her shit out on Instagram and see her amazing creations and all of the insanely talented people who've commissioned her work. But also, get excited to hear my conversation with her because she's so fun and smart and is so engaged with and excited about her chosen discussion topics. And that's what we want at the Spark Parade, folks. Enthusiasm! But before I let you hear that, you have to suffer through my musings. Don't worry, I'll make it brief. Talking about the Beatles got me thinking about the differences between experiencing art at the time when it's created and experiencing it when it's part of the past. For Karen and me, the Beatles had already broken up before we were born. I've always known them as a part of music history. But my parents experienced their music as it came out and entered the charts for the first time. 
I've also, obviously, had the experience of falling in love with artworks right when they're released and have just entered the public consciousness. A musical example of this is the first Portishead record, Dummy, which just recently had its 25th anniversary. When it came out, it totally blew my mind. It was fresh and exciting, and I listened to it nonstop for years. I still listen to it frequently, but my relationship with it has changed. It's become so familiar, and its influence has bled so much into popular culture, that it feels like a completely different album. In some ways, it's easier for me to form my own opinions about art when it's brand new, and the weight of other people's opinions hasn't clouded my judgment. But it's also amazing to watch the art I love become part of history. Seeing the ways the dummy has affected millions of other people has enhanced my experience of the music. Art consumption almost always becomes a collaborative effort in that way. So even though my nieces and nephews won't experience dummy fresh out of the metaphorical box, I'm glad they'll learn to love it as a piece of history. And oh, you trust me, I'll make them love it. There, that wasn't so bad, was it? You made it through, and now you get your dessert, which is my chat with Karen Rose Gold about the Muppets and the Beatles. Why don't we start with the Muppets? Ah, uh, can we? I oh my goodness. Um, I, I will say that today's topics, Muppets and the Beatles, are the, my two most favorite things in the entire world. <laughs> and I do want to let everybody know that I wanted my bat mitzvah theme in 1996 to be the Muppets and or the Beatles. And my mother, who denies this to this very day, said to me, those are really childish and you're going to grow up and look back on your bat mitzvah with shame and that this is what you chose your theme to be. And so my parents decided they wanted the theme of my bat mitzvah to be something that at least reflected some sort of cultural or, or religious history. Mm -hmm. So my theme was the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and I look back on that with shame and much regret. So so yeah so now we can let's start with the muppets <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i i think the muppets and the beatles both seem like very excellent inclusions in a bat mitzvah i i thought so a 13 year old karen uh, was a genius for that one yeah. and was shot down yeah anyway moving moving <laughs> away from that painful moment yes in history um so I would say with both of these topics, actually, my normal first question is like, wh when did you first come upon these things? But I don't imagine that was ever, especially with the Beatles, like, you know, we'll talk about them later. But uh, um, even with the Muppets, they were in existence before you it, were born. And, exactly. And and they were, they've been, I distinctly remember when I discovered the Beatles, but the Muppets, the Muppet, I, I mean, I feel as though they've just been in my life forever. We, as a growing up, we weren't, my, my sister and I, uh, as the, the, we, uh, were not allowed to really watch much television. So I never did Saturday morning cartoons. Mm -hmm. Um, we were only allowed, you know, a certain number, a certain amount of television a day. And we could only watch things that were not appropriate as far as age because you know i saw you know my parents showed me movies like wait until dark and raising arizona when i was probably far too young <laughs> to watch them but there had to be some sort of value in whatever entertainment that we were taking in and sesame street was not only a place where they could you know bond with us but it was you know i learned how to count in spanish on sesame street and the muppets were just always they just always brought me joy 
Mm-hmm. I, I remember being filled with so much joy. There's a, ta- a cassette tape somewhere in my parents' house. And I do remember this happening where I would do the Kermit voice and my dad would do the rest of the Muppet voices. And I would be Kermit the Frog <laughs> from Sesame Street News interviewing the various Muppets as played by my dad. And this is like this was like a bath time activity. And somewhere there is a cassette tape of this because I remember stumbling upon it back when I still used cassettes and being like, oh, shit, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, I had Sesame Street bath toys, which now live in my adult Manhattan apartment. I loved the show. Um, and then, you know, and, you know, watch the Mu- watched the Muppet movies, got more into them as an adult, oddly enough. But I remember also discovering the Muppet show. Mm. And the Muppet Show, even as a kid, I remember being so blown away by how smart that show was Mm -hmm. and how in the same way that I had that sort of revelation with Mel Brooks Mm -hmm. uh, movies where I remember finding things really funny as a kid and then rewatching a few years later and picking up on things that I didn't notice the first time because I hadn't you know, it, it was just not, it was a more adult humor and it blew my mind. It blew my mind because it was done so seamlessly and so well. And, and, and then I got excited because I was like, oh, there's more stuff in like three or four years that I'm going to figure out, you know, I'm going to learn about something else and find that funny. Right. Um, you know, and also the, like, I, I loved how, like, they just, they brought in these great guest stars. They, I remember getting dressed up as a flower girl for Maria and Luis's wedding. Um, <laughs> you know, they, I really respected how with Sesame Street, oh my God, I can get so rambly because I just love so much and get overwhelmed with love. Um, <laughs> with Sesame Street uh, as sort of the, the, the starting point, I... Because my parents talked to my sister and I like we were regular people. They didn't, they, you know, they treated us like children because we were children, but they talked to us with a level of mutual respect that I mm-hmm. don't think a lot of children get. And I loved that Sesame Street did the same thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't shy, there There was no shying away from any topics. There, it was always about like bringing like just it was about uplifting children and uplifting communities and it wasn't about trying to make anything seem perfect um you know they had a song called everyone makes mistakes mm-hmm. they they it wasn't it was a show where the stars of the show weren't these like perfect beautiful creatures they were actual creatures um mm-hmm. it was diverse at a time when television was not known for its diversity uh, yeah, everything about it was just so, so special. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, of course, as commercialization um, and corporatization has, you know, how sort of everything feels like hashtag SpawnCon right now. <laughs> um, I've definitely have caught a few recent episodes of Sesame Street and it's very different. Mm-hmm. It's it's evolved with the times, which I think is necessary. But, you know, now, especially with the 50th anniversary and a lot of people writing these nostalgic pieces and just every a lot of just a lot of memories coming back, you know, being like brought back by everyone. You can go and watch these classic pieces from the 70s and 80s. And they're just so they like they make you want to cry with their with with just how pure and good and wholesome mm-hmm. they are. And in the dumpster fire <laughs> that we live in it, I think it's it's 
it it just like it you're just like oh wow you know what not everything is garbage not everything is hot garbage yeah um, and i think also like the way that sesame street talked to kids the way that concepts were explained mm -hmm. to them that might be you know very big complicated heavy mm -hmm. shit like yep. death or divorce or yep. you know even just your friend moving away or whatever mm -hmm. it was or counting talking to kids like um not patronizing them saying this is something that you don't know yet or you might not know yet and here's what it's all about yep. um and it's kind of matter of fact but also so full of kindness so full of love mm -hmm. and giving kids this like safe welcoming place yep. where they can learn stuff and feel like you know they're in the same vein as Mr. Rogers where it's like TV friends who are there to support you and want the best for you yep and i think that's where all so much of that nostalgic reverence comes from that oh, it's like absolutely. people just you know having these wonderful memories of feeling like they had this extra vein of support from a, a tv show which is, is pretty incredible oh absolutely and even now you know in, in the re in recent years and i think what a lot of people forget is that sesame street is a non-profit organization mm -hmm. um and in recent years they've had you know a muppet who has a parent in jail they ha they deal they have a muppet with aids they have a homeless muppet they deal with the refugee crisis they have opened up in i don't know exactly how many markets i mean i feel like it's over 100 and each market has muppets that cater to that cultural market i even uh, growing up so i'm i'm half israeli mm -hmm. and i grew up um i still speak both english and hebrew i speak english my mom and hebrew my dad um although when he did muppet voices they weren't english um <laughs> Most of the time. And we also watched Rehov Sumsum, which is, uh, it literally translates to Sesame Street. And the main character on that show was a Muppet called Kipi Ben Kipod, uh, or uh, Kipi son of uh, Porcupine, because he was a porcupine. <laughs> um, and, you know, and they would talk about different things on that show than they would on you know, than they would on the American version. And I know that they do that in all of the markets as well. And they make it, it's not just, here's the American one dubbed in Spanish. It's like, right. here's the Spanish Muppets. Like, here's your special thing. I don't know. I just think it's just all, it's just all so wonderful. And it's an organization that actually does so much good. And, uh, yeah, that yeah. idea of like, just being aware of the differences from country to country mm -hmm. and cultural differences within this country mm -hmm. um, and being respectful of the differences between people, no matter what those differences are, but also wanting everyone to feel, all, all children to feel included in yes. that project. Yes. And um, it wasn't so much a you're a special snowflake you know, it wasn't, it didn't take that gentle kind of bullshit attitude towards right. children. It was just like, oh yeah, you're just like, you're a kid. Cool. Mm -hmm. Like, and, let's, let's do some kid stuff. Right. And like all different kinds of kids exist and yep. all different kinds of experiences exist. And, and all different kinds of Muppets exist. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. And I don't know how much of it, I, I guess I could look this up, <laughs> but uh, I don't know how involved Jim Henson was in the development of Sesame Street from like a child development perspective. That but, my um, understanding, and we can look this up, but <laughs> my understanding is that they, and if memory serves, because I did read up on this years ago, that there were always child psychologists involved in the process, that when he went into children's television, he wanted to make sure that it was actually beneficial for children, which is not something that a lot of people do. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe like the baby shark people do it, but I don't think they're necessarily <laughs> concerned with kid psychology. They're more like, okay, what's going to, what's going to be an earworm forever that'll right. sell like merch? Like what's, what's happening here? I don't know. Yeah. I can't speak for baby shark people. Sorry, baby <laughs> shark people. Um, but you know, he, he, my understanding is that he involved children psychologists and therapists to make sure that especially with the, you know, with the heavier topics that they were going about things very gently and respectfully. Yeah. Um, and same thing with learning. They, uh, they wanted to, you know, the segments were traditionally, you know, under two minutes because children's attention spans were shorter. And so they wanted to make sure that kids were able to, you know, kids had the attention span to sit through the programming. You know, if they were doing a counting thing or an alphabet thing, they would do that for like 30 seconds to like a minute and a half. Right. Because they knew that kids' attention would, you know, wander. Yeah, I think it's, so clear that all of those considerations were mm-hmm. taken into account before they started the show and that it's been this ongoing evolution as mm-hmm. well. But I also think like, you know, the Muppets themselves were supposed to be an adult thing from the beginning. I, um, oh, and, and I, then, I can tell you the whole Jim Henson history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so it feels like, like a psycho. Yeah, it feels like that foundation of like Sesame Street feels like it, it is definitely targeted at children. Yes, and specifically. And it's all... There isn't a lot of like sneaky adult humor thrown in or, you know, not even subtle adult humor like the Muppets, uh, the Muppet show, the Muppet movies, the earlier Muppet Muppet movies. Yeah. (laughs) So adult. And they definitely appealed to children, but it felt like, especially the Muppet show, a regular kind of late night variety show that adults could and did watch. Well, I don't know if you knew this, but fun fact, the Muppet show, like the first Muppet show skits were on the early, like the first season of SNL. Oh, yeah. And, you know, because that's, that was the humor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that, I think that's what's so great. It's, you know, this, this man, Jim, he had this vision for what he wanted to do with his life. And Okay, so there's a um, there's a Jim. I'm pretty sure it's a permanent exhibition at the Museum of Moving Image mm-hmm. in Queens. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're in New York and you haven't been, you should go. It is <laughs> it's phenomenal, and it takes you through it's it, the history of Jim Henson, not just the history of the Muppets, and you learn about crazy shit. Like he full like had a fully sketched rendering of a nightclub that he wanted to open he you get to see all like the wilkins coffee commercials which was sort of the first thing uh so before he before he did any of the muppet stuff i think he was doing local news and then local news with these these puppets and then um started doing advertising Mm. and then that sort of helped him evolve it turn it into a show right and when you sort of see all of that, you're like, oh, you, you, like, you hat tricked this. Like, this is fucking phenomenal. Mm. And so, yeah, so it just goes through the entire, and, you know, you get to see all of the Dark Crystal stuff. You get to see the Fraggle Rock stuff. You know, you get to see all of the other things that, uh, you know, like Henson did the Venus Flytrap and Little Shop of Horrors. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, all of the mm-hmm. other things that the company do- did. One of the funniest things in that exhibit was there was when they were pitching the Muppet show, they made a, you know, a reel that they like a pitch, a pitch reel. I think it must be about two minutes long. You can find it on YouTube. It's fucking phenomenal. And it was a pitch reel pitching the Muppet show to execs. And there was, you know, it's this news guy puppet and 
He's talking about how, you know, hey, you know what? We have this show idea. This is what it's going to be. As it goes on, he gets more frantic and it kind of gets more meta. He's like, you know, we, he's like, it's going to be great. And then you guys are going to make all this money. And then we're going to make more money. And then you'll make money and everybody's going to make money. And the pitch is essentially, you're going to get rich off of us. So why don't you do this? But it's done with a Muppet. Mm. And that's the entire pitch. There's no like, here are the characters we're introducing. This is what we think we're going to do. It was just like... This is a sure thing. You should do it. It's going to make you rich. And that's the whole, that was the pitch that was sent out to executives. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen because you're just like, oh, you're like, holy shit. Like this, you, this is really you, this was your yes. Okay. I I mean, I think it worked. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. But you watch it and you're like, oh, you understand just like his understanding of what humans wanted and needed. Mm -hmm. Because that explains Nothing and everything. And everything at the same time. Because <laughs> yeah. you're like, you know what? If this is what the pitch deck is, the show is going to be sick. Right. Like, I'm not worried. <laughs> yeah, that. And there's also a really lovely clip in there for one of the Muppet movies of Kermit and Fozzie. Or maybe it's just Fozzie. I think it's they're doing like camera testing and Fozzie is trying to talk to some cows. Maybe Rolf is trying to talk. Someone's trying to talk to some cows. <laughs> and then like he keeps fucking up his lines, but like keeps it in character while fucking up the lines. And you're just like, this is great. Like, this yeah. is so fucking wonderful. Did you see this was before the Muppets wing opened at Momi, but mm-hmm. they had individual pieces of Jim Henson kind of uh, stuff. And they had a student film that he did. And I don't know if it's still there. I think it's part of their permanent collection, but it's so fucking weird and like kind of sexy oh yes yes, yes. and like super psychedelic and like in a forest Uh yes it's so it's so weird yeah and you're like oh my god were were you doing all the drugs like what right right i mean i think he was mormon like i don't know um or mennonite something something with an m um also something (laughs) i should look up oh it's so it's so weird and that i think in the exhibit that's in the same room or the same section as the nightclub as just Mm. sort of really like here's this other side that i think that explains jim henson and what he was all about he held multiple truths mm-hmm. and and i think people that hold multiple truths are you unless they're like bad you know unless one of them is really bad uh, are the most exciting people to me right. is that you know he, it wasn't just this one you know a lot of people only think of jim henson as like oh you know now disney's muppets and mm-hmm. sesame street but there were there was so much more to it. It was this really, like the Muppets are wavy. They're so wavy and they're so weird. And the humor and the writing is so good. And I don't think that it gets enough credit. You know, I, I obviously Muppets are really well known. They're, they're you know, they're Sesame Street Muppets, especially are icons. And just they're part of the cultural iconography of America. But the rest of the Muppets and the breadth of the Muppets don't get enough credit. Right. And yeah. And so, I don't know. I, I think there was a definitely a period of time where I shied away from talking ad nauseum about how much I loved the Muppets because I was like, no, I'm an adult. I, you know, I shouldn't really. And I was like, oh, fuck it. Just lean into it. And and I rediscovered all of these things that I had forgotten about. And I was like, no, this is the most wonderful thing. And yeah, even recently, uh, my husband surprised me with tickets to jazz at Lincoln's, the Winton Marsalis Jazz at Lincoln Center 50th anniversary Sesame Street. Oh, my God. Performance. I, oh, my God, I cried so much. Um, it was, <laughs> it was phenomenal. 
watching Hoots the Owl and Ernie do a jazz rendition of Put Down the Ducky. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then at the very end, they came out. You know, we were two seats in from the aisle and, at, and in the and very close to the front. And at the very end, they all the performers came out into the aisles. And I was maybe, I don't know, like I wasn't within arm's distance. So maybe like five feet away from Ernie. And I couldn't, I could not handle it. Um <laughs> Uh, to the point where, like, I turned to Nick and my husband. I was like, um, "I was not. I was not prepared for this being the, this close and being in this vicinity." And not to brag, but I've had the very good fortune of becoming uh, close friends with almost like a little sister to Lewis Mitchell, who is he is in charge of really drawing all of the Sesame Street characters now. Like he drew when Gonzo, was Gonzo a Thanksgiving Day Parade balloon or was Kermit? When when one of those was this Thanksgiving Day Parade balloon, he drew the sketch that turned into the Thanksgiving Day Parade balloon. And he has uh, taken me to the, I've been to the Jim Henson Carriage House where they do photo shoots for like DVDs, you know, new like DVD menus and stuff. Right. Um, which is on the Upper East Side. And I've also been to the Henson Workshop in Long Island City. Mm. And it's 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 just the most joyful, joyful place on earth. And I went to the, when I was at the Henson, when I was at the uh, workshop in Long Island City, it was right before the uh, the Momi exhibit opened. Mm. And they were restoring, oh my God, which Muppet were they restoring? They had two, um, they had two Coos, original Coosbanes from Coosbane. Mm. And they had, oh my God, who did they have? They had one of the band members and I don't remember which band member it was. And like, and the interesting thing about them is they weren't made for longevity because I don't think that they were necessarily that Henson and company at the time was necessarily thinking about archiving these pieces. And so they had to, in order to restore them, they would have to peel off the first layer of Muppet face because the foam on the inside had disintegrated and then put like essentially skin graft Right. these Muppets. And I was like, oh my God, don't yeah. do it in front of me. I will not be okay. Um, but yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity of getting like up close and personal with some Muppet stuff. And it's even, even when you're just like, oh, you are, you are on a stick, you know, you are on a stick being posed for a DVD menu. I was like, right. this is the coolest thing yeah. I've ever seen in my life. Thank you, Louis. Uh, Louis, Louis is wonderful. Um, and I'm very grateful for his friendship. Oh, that's amazing. Um, that is the tip of the iceberg and we could probably talk about the muppets for another i mean three I'm, hours. I'm trying uh, to i'm tr- again i'm trying to modulate my voice and just not when i get very and this is, makes it very difficult when it comes to podcasting about things you care about um or talking at all about things you care about is <laughs> i when i get when i fi- get filled with emotion like all sense of like logic and decorum and my communication skills just go to shit. <laughs> so you're like, okay, yeah, let's um, let's talk about things that you really love that have impacted you creatively. And I'm just like, ah, love. Yeah. Muppets. I've... Like it's, you know, I just turn into a Muppet and just want to, you know, <laughs> like wave my hands above my head like Kermit and be like, ah, yes. and that's. That is. And, and I have to form cohesive sentences. It's very tricky. Yeah. I mean, that is the, uh, the primary purpose behind doing this podcast so i'm very uh i, I, oh, wel- to, I to welcome fluster your guests yes, cool thank I, you i welcome <laughs> <laughs> um but yes in the interest of time we should 
skip along to topic two, Move which is to another very, uh, you know, small, confined uh, topic mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm sure you don't have very much to say about. Um, so you, I appreciate your humor because I do the same. <laughs> uh, you said you do actually remember becoming aware of the Beatles. Is yes. This right. So there was always music played in my house. Um, my mother is a big fan of classical music, which she actually learned about from, uh, Looney Tunes. Great. <laughs> um, when she was a kid and so, you know, there was always classical music being played in the house, but my parents also had. A uh, record. We had a a stand that had it was the it, in the den. It was the the den, den TV, and then a record player, and then underneath it were the records. And you know, my my parents are cool, and they raised you know well behaved children. So if we wanted to, you know, we had to ask permission to touch the records, but we were allowed to touch the records. And you know, they're these twelve by twelve inch sleeves with pictures, and some of them open up and. You know, there were a bunch there, but my mom had all of the Beatles records. She had she had all of the Beatles records. She wasn't a fanatic. Mm. Um, I don't think she's a fanatic about anything. That's just not her temperament. But she loved the Beatles. Mm. Who doesn't? Yeah. Um, and my my dad my dad did as well. Um, but he didn't bring any records with him when he moved to the states. And so there was one record, you know, and there the oldies would play in the house. You know, is Israeli pop music would play in the house. Um, my dad played piano. So there was, you know, some, there was always some sort of noise happening in the house. But there was this one record, there were a lot of records that were made during that time that were essentially just ways to sell more records where it was record, like weird record labels would sort of license music to press these vinyls. At least that's my understanding. And it would be these like teeny bopper kind of mm-hmm. vinyls. So there was one that they had where it was was a, uh, a vinyl that opened up. And so the the front part, the front cover was just the classic, a classic photo of very early, you know, suit Beatles, haircut Beatles. And, <laughs> and then on the side were these four these four caricature color caricature photos of each beetle in a line from top to bottom. When you opened it up, there were was a paragraph next to each caricature that offered up fun facts like, you know, John Lennon loves pizza, his favorite colors like and and I was like, "Oh, this is cool." Like I'm, you know, I was like, "I'm going to read." You know, I was like, mm. "I'm a 3, I can read." Yeah. And not only was that sort of my first foray into the Beatles, but it was when I decided that Ringo Starr was my favorite Beatle okay. because he was the only Beatle with blue eyes and he was the shortest. Okay. And at the time I was a child who was short and I was like, great, this is my one. And then, by the way, if you flip the record over, there were – it was four – it was four stri- four colored stripes with a, you know, Beatle – like a, a cropped Beatle's face in each one. And then underneath it was an outline of a heart. And it wrote like, you know, John loves, Paul loves, George. Um, And so you were encouraged to, with your girlfriends, um, you know, in the 60s, uh, to cut out a photo of your face in the heart shape and stick it as like, oh, John loves me and George loves you. And um, so, yeah, so that was sort of the first Beatles record that I remember, like, being aware of, just as as, like specifically being aware of because, you know, I could read it. Right. Um, (laughs) And I was like, oh, I like this one. Blue eyes. Yay. Um, 
And yeah, and so my dad or my mom, one of them taught me how to use the record player, must have been somewhere between three or four. And, you know, it was the old record player, you know, much like a classic turntable where it has the the stripes with the dots. And then when it spins around, they spin in like concentric circles. And the early, you know, I started with the early records. Um, I don't know if it was because we wanted to go in chronological order or what, but the early, you know, the first Beatles songs are just fire pop songs. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're perfect. They're perfect songs. Mm -hmm. And we would sing them in the house. We would listen to them in the car. Um, And I, I was hooked. I was hooked. It was all I, I actually didn't listen to. I didn't listen to modern music until I was about 14 or 15. Mm. I listened only Mm. to CBS FM (laughs) 101.1 or uh, based out of New York or cool 96.7, which was based out of Connecticut, but you could still get on Long Island. So yeah, so if you if you play an oldies radio now, I can probably sing along to every single song that it that is on. Like I I will take that I'll take that bet. Yeah. Um, Same. But yeah, and the Beatles they were just they were they were so it it was just it was just perfect music. Yeah. It was perfect. It's still perfect music. And the thing for me about the Beatles that continues to impress me is that they went from they went from being new kids on the block to mm-hmm. being Nirvana. Yeah. In a and- 10 year in a 10 year period they did all of that and they were the best at doing that. Oh my god, I mean name name an album like name a song and and it's just it's a fucking banger and their shit got weird and they, you know, they had this insane success as this like very well-dressed pop group and then decided to sort of abandon it and and they weren't afraid to abandon something and try something new mm-hmm. and and you know and granted the music industry is nothing like it was back then mm-hmm. um and so i don't think an act like the beatles could exist anymore um and probably couldn't you know i mean it hasn't existed before or since but they they were like, we're going to do this and we're going to go off and to India and smoke some hash and like mm-hmm. try something else. And then, and then we're going to make movies and the movies are going to be fucking weird. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the, the thing that's another thing that, uh, another part of the reason why that formula hasn't existed again is that even though they were, you know, One Direction when they started out right. and had people screaming when they got off of airplanes and, um, you know, album covers where you can choose your favorite Beatle and mm-hmm. write love letters to them or whatever and had people obsessing over them in the same way that modern boy bands and girl bands have people obsessing over them. They were not manufactured. They, they were a band that right. was created organically. They mm-hmm. were writing these huge pop songs, but they were writing them themselves and right. playing the instruments. Yeah. And that evolution happened because they were really talented musicians and in, like insanely, incredibly talented, historically yes, talented exactly. musicians. Yeah. And it was, um, it was, it was the right place, the right time, the right people. It was a lightning strikes only once kind of miracle moment mm. for absolutely. And before they became famous, you know, there it's known that they would play the, I want to say in Germany, they would play these, you know, 10 hour pub sets mm-hmm. and 
they and that was a you know and especially like as a live band that was a way for them to make sure that when you know when it was time for them to go on tv it was fucking perfect yeah oh my god well, i don't remember which album one of their album they recorded the entire thing in like 12 hours mm. and they, because they were that good and they were that good together yeah i i just think i remember talking to other people about like trying to draw comparisons to modern boy bands or girl bands and saying like, you know, somebody who I knew a long time ago thought that the, uh, the Spice Girls, when they were first starting out, they're like, well, maybe this will be like the Beatles. And this is their, like, I want to hold your hand phase. And it was already like, come on, fuck off. Are you, I'm um, assuming you haven't seen that person in a long time because no, you're no not, longer friends with them. Not somebody that who comment. I was even friends with in the first place. But <laughs> I, I mean, that, I, I love and respect the Spice Girls, but come yeah, on. Yeah, that was, and it was like this offhand comment that's just stuck with me because it was so fucking ludicrous. But um, <laughs> that idea that it's like, you know, obviously the Spice Girls are heavily manufactured, mm-hmm. did not write their own music, weren't really musicians, you know. That yeah, they were a casting like, call. Right. A brilliant casting call, right. but a casting call. But that the comparison, just trying to think of any other band that has had that amount of control over their output, you know, that they were the ones who were creating the music, they were playing the music, mm-hmm. and had such a dramatic evolution in the style of music, the kinds of songs mm-hmm. that they were playing. And, you know, if you think about huge, huge artists like, you know, people like Madonna or I don't know, like Madonna doesn't really write that much of her own music either. But um, Elton John, for example, yeah. his career evolved, but what there, there wasn't, it wasn't like this distinct feeling from album to album where it was like different people, a completely different band. Exactly. Like David Bowie, I may be the mm-hmm. closest, but yeah, they, and they, you know, they had their own record label. They made movies. They, I mean, obviously there was like licensing and merch up the wazoo. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they really helped pioneer that for sure. Right. They were like, yeah, put us on lunch boxes, on bed sheets, make dolls out of us. I definitely have my mom's um, George Harrison. Uh, I think it was a paint by numbers figurine. And I and I have the Beatles flip your wig board game that I found at my grandparents' house years ago. <laughs> Love it. And yeah, it, they, I I think everything about them was just so it was so masterful. Okay, yes, it was so masterful. It was so brilliant. But at the end of the day, you can go back to any one of those albums, and it is still the best album you've ever heard. Um, they theoretically invented metal with Helter Skelter. Hmm. Um, they, you know, they've just, they've just ugh, like they've done, they've done so much and they've influenced so many. But the thing that most, and which is the same thing that excites me, and that like, which is why I really love Jim Henson and the Muppets, is that at the end of the day, the quality and authenticity of the output is so good and so pure that you can play. You know, that's why they're both still. I mean, Abbey Road is a fifty-year-old album now. Mm-hmm. Like that's why you can go back to Abbey Road. You can go back to like early seasons of Sesame Street. You can go back to Muppet Show. You can go back to Meet the Beatles. You can go back to any any of those albums, and you're just like, "Fuck, this is good," mm-hmm. um, because it's not. You know, it's not gimmicky. It's not. You know, they're not trying to ride a wave. They're not trying to stay on trend even though the comparison is always are you a beatles person are you a stones person yeah the rolling stones are fucking great and they're still killing it but a rolling you know a rolling stone song is a rolling stone song is a rolling stone song and i would also say with that comparison the stones are a band that have 
carried on, have been, you know, playing for whatever, 60 years Mm -hmm. now. And they have continued to put out albums well past their prime, Mm -hmm. well past a time when people really felt like their albums were something that everybody paid attention to. It's like they still have a very huge fan base of people who will buy their albums. But as, as with any musician's career, you get to a point where you don't have the level of success that you had at your peak. Exactly. And the Beatles never, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily uh, well, a problem. I, after, well, I mean, after 10 years, they, they disbanded. Right. You know, as a designer who is sort of morphing into her next Pokemon evolution, <laughs> um, I, I now more than, more so than ever before, I look at their catalog and I'm like, yeah, you, you did everything you could have done. Like you had, you had nowhere to go. You had nowhere to go but explore your solo careers, which, you know, they all did and mm-hmm. all did very well. Um, so, yeah. So and and that's they they knew. Yeah, I really they just did everything that they could have done. Yeah. Yeah. And just having that their entire catalog be this finite thing that's not ongoing. There's nothing to dilute the, mm-hmm. you know, it's whatever, six hours of music. But uh, with the Rolling Stones, like, I, this is my my taste and my opinion as well, that, like, I love all of the, the Stone stuff from when they, you know, were really at the top of their game. And I don't really pay attention to anything they've yeah. done in the last, whatever, 30 years. Oh, for and, sure. Um, to me, I don't know if that dilutes the legacy, but it changes it. And mm-hmm. with the Beatles, that's not possible. It was this finite, yeah. period of time and finite catalog. There's no, um, you know, no room for anything else to happen, mm-hmm. not just because they split up, but because half of them are dead. Yeah. Um, and that means that, you know, you can evaluate the whole experience, the whole project on, on its own. There's right. nothing else that's going to develop. Um, so I think it's easier to kind of understand their value and understand their place in the history of music mm-hmm. because it's all right there. Right. Exactly. Um, the most important question I think on everyone's mind, I can say this with some confidence is, Oof. can you tell me is Ringo Starr is still your favorite Beatle? You know what? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Okay. He, Ringo Starr is still my favorite Beatle. You know, I, I think, you know, sort of you never forget your first love. <laughs> yeah. And I, I always sort of root for the underdog. I actually think that Ringo, uh, Ringo has been very underappreciated in pop culture and musical history. Mm-hmm. Um, he finally got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame about fucking time. He was the yeah. only little, But even when you listen to the other Beatles, they are super clear about how, and no diss to Pete Best, I'm sure Pete Best was great, yeah. but they they talk about how it really when Ringo came in it really gelled mm-hmm. and he was like you know I think that some with drumming with subtle drumming it's a very subtle art form it's very it can often be like a less is more kind of a thing where mm-hmm. yes it seemed like what he was doing was really simple but he was doing it in such an exacting manner and adding just enough flair to make it special and that's a skill and i think that a lot of people also by the way also also (laughs) ringo was mr conductor on shining time station yes yeah and that is something that is hella overlooked and he wrote octopus's garden and that song is flames yay for ringo i know ringo forever (laughs) everybody ring everybody love ringo please he's the best that sounded very much like jeb bush like please clap (laughs) No, no, no. Yeah, no, please clap here. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> um, 
that is great. Uh, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in a very short amount of time. And I'm very proud of both of us for oh, condensing such enormous subjects. Such enormous into, legacies into yes. into one one-ish hour. Yes. Um, Respectful, but concise. That's I, I hope so. For. I hope that when you listen back to this, it is not just these like incoherent sentences <laughs> filled with like just overwhelmed with emotion and, you know, and underwhelmed with uh, intelligence and concise cohesiveness. Um, I, I think uh, we will both be very pleased with this. I, I, I know it. I know we will. Thank you so much for having Thank me. Thank you. I, um, this podcast is wonderful. Thank you very um, much. And I really do love learning about, um, uh, I love learning about other creatives and mm. what inspires them. Um, I find that to be very inspiring. So maybe yeah, on our next, on our next episode, we yeah. can talk about this podcast as my source of inspiration. Oh, that's a lovely. Is that is that too meta? Yeah. Is that too no, weird? No, I Just I would enough? go there. Okay. I would go there. Cool. Um, if anyone listening to this would like to keep up with the next step in your Pokemon evolution, mm. uh, is your website the best way, or the socials, or? Well, I can tell you all of that. Um, <laughs> the socials, which I think people usually gravitate towards to most, is specifically on Instagram, because I am a pretty visual brand, uh, is Amorir Studio, spelt A-M-O-R-I-R-S-T-U-D-I-O. Um, and then my website links through there, but it's a-m-o-r-i-r.com. Um, I have a bunch of other websites that I need to link all together to make one big ass website because <laughs> you know there's a project portfolio website a personal art website the the web shop i encourage you to visit the web shop not just because um i enjoy making things for money um but because you can you know you can see what kind of glittery objects um that come out of a mind obsessed with both jim henson and the muppets and the beatles <laughs> And you're going to be like, this makes no sense, but okay. <laughs> that sounds, uh, that, that is quite uh, the enticement, I think. Okay, good. Um, good, so, good, good. Yes. A lot, if, if a lot of crystals, a lot. <laughs> and I've put in my doesn't ten, love crystals? I've put in, much like the Beatles put in their 10,000 hours when they were playing those 10 hour, you know, gig, <laughs> pub gigs. I have put in my 10,000 hours with uh, crystal artistry and it shows. <laughs> Very good. Um, great. Well, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I am so touched and honored, uh, to be here and, um, yeah, I can't wait to listen to the rest of your, of your episodes. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Isn't she great? Wasn't that fun? Those are rhetorical questions, but I'll answer them both with a resounding yes. Please check out her work. It's truly amazing. Okay. How about some recommendations, eh? Firstly, I saw To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, Aaron Sorkin wrote the stage adaptation, Ed Harris is Atticus Finch right now. Needless to say, it was great. The acting and writing were great. The sets were insane. Broadway excess at its finest. Nick Robinson of Love, Simon fame is in it, and he's great too. My only complaint is that Lisa Gay Hamilton is criminally underused. I love her so much, and she's fantastic in her all-too-brief appearance in the show. Someone please give her a starring role in a Broadway show next, okay? Thanks.
Then I went to see Queen and Slim, which is a film written by Lena Waithe and directed by Melina Matsukas. Now, Melina Matsukas has directed every music video ever made, basically, or at least the best ones. I'll post some shit on the socials about it for you because it's actually insane. Her body of work is incredible. Anyway, Queen and Slim. Daniel Kaluuya is great, Jodie Turner-Smith is great, but I'm afraid we have another criminally underused performer in this one. India Moore, who you'll know from Pose, is so good in this film, and they're given like three minutes of screen time. Give them a leading role next, please. Thank you. And then I watched The Irishman, like everyone else in the world. It's really good, guys. It's fucking eternal, but you don't really feel it while you're watching it. It's a real hoot to see all of these great actors in the same film. De Niro and Pacino and Pesci and Keitel and the 900 million other actors in this movie. Just be prepared that the women in it basically don't speak. It's a three and a half hour runtime and there's probably 15 minutes of lady talking. It's a specific choice and I think it kind of makes sense in this context, but still, just a little heads up. And... I think that'll do it this week. One other little announcement. I've got a GoFundMe going. Exciting, right? I've got big plans for this show in the new year, and that includes getting the word out and expanding my audience exponentially. I've got a big-ass marketing plan, and I'm going to upgrade some equipment to make everything sound better for you, and I'm going to transcribe every episode so you can read them if you've got hearing impairments or just hate the sound of my voice. You can find links to the GoFundMe page on the Spark Parade website and all of the socials where you should already be following me, at Spark Parade. So if you've got a little spare cash and you want to support the show, please contribute. Or you can just share the GoFundMe campaign with everyone you know. Or write a nice review of the show and rate it five stars wherever you download. That helps a lot, too. God, so needy, right? But I really do appreciate any love you can show from me or for the podcast. Okay? Enough begging. Enough begging. Run free, little friends. Enjoy your week. Until next time, bye. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.